Hey there, in lieu of doing a promo or something at the beginning of this, I do have a bit of a disclaimer here. Uh, the audio quality takes a bit of a dive because of bad Skype weather a uh, little ways into this. We do fix it shortly afterward. So there are only a couple of minutes where things sound like it's a kind of a dodgy phone conversation. Um, after that, things pick back up. So be patient. Listen to it. It's still legible, I believe. Um, and uh, otherwise, just skip forward until you can understand things if you cannot Cool, thank you. Welcome to Radio Free Midworld, a podcast about the Dark Tower series of books by Stephen King. My name is Cole Ross, and I'm your host, and today I'm joined by Autumn Greer. Hey, Autumn. Hey, Cole. You know, you might not believe this but i'm delighted to be here as always <laughs> um you this will stretch credulity uh i am delighted to have you here <laughs> if you can accept that then i think we can move forward oh yeah i, I can't <laughs> wait to move forward because the action's about to happen yes we are uh th things are rapidly coming to a boil here in the wolves of the cala yeah, and you've you've already been on this season, so I don't have any of my any of my famous go to questions, you know, to kind of ease us in. I don't really have any banter at the start. Um, am I correct? <laughs> are you are you going to be coming to Portland this year? Um, we're we're still figuring that out. I'm okay. um, we're we're trying to trying to work out schedule. Of course, my company put a um, sales meeting right smack next to it, so <laughs> we're trying to figure that out. Oh well. Well, I hope to see you there anyway. I remember I remember Gary saying that was a possibility. Well, in the absence of banter, how about we uh how about we get started in this cuz I I really want to talk about some of the reveals that are made in this. Uh would you believe um that Andy is a dick? <laughs> <sighs> Who could have possibly seen this coming yeah that smarmy ass robot and smug that smug motherfucker walking around reading people's <laughs> horoscopes <laughs> all of you that. know you know but we we actually get tricked because you know we, we might have seen it coming with andy but we didn't see what happens with callahan coming at least i didn't n i know like maybe there was uh one or two um uh kind of clues that that, that this was possibly going to stand in the way well, why don't we just do it? So last time we uh, kind of finished up the tale, the telling tales section of the story where Callahan shared his uh, you know backstory up to the point where he left his world and came into Midworld. Uh, you know, he was kind of brought in by the uh, by the Sombra Corporation um, and its head Richard Sayer and. Uh, all of the low men and vampires were looking for revenge against him. And so he wound up via Walter at a uh, caliber Sturgis holding black 17, not 17 with black 13. Um, so, and now we go into the section titled the wolves. Everything is all of these pieces lining up with each other. How cute is it that Roland has, Roland is having his little fling with Rosalita. I love all the little sexual innuendos, like the the mossy coves and the you know. Well, I've I've got a goose, if you know what I mean. Yep. Like, I, mean... I forgot that he, I forgot that they likened genitals to gooses. Yeah, 
Like, I mean, it's ni- it's nice for Roland, but it really makes me think that, like, the, the locker room back in Gilead at the boys' training camp must have just been full of the dumbest innuendos ever. Mm, yeah, very, uh, like, like um, it'd be a little bit like uh, like Civil War Letters to Home. Like, on the surface, it sounds very, like, high-minded and poetic, but actually it's just kind of dumb and empty. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Build her an aqueduct, if you know what I mean. Like, <laughs> what? It doesn't even work. Oh, my my, de- my my dearest Clarabeth, the vine of our struggle. What are you talking about? <laughs> Ken Burns, why are you reading this? <laughs> um, yeah, no, but it's uh, it's it's very cute. And as far as I can remember, uh, nothing terrible happens to Rosalita. So, hey, Roland, guess what? You're not batting zero <laughs> in terms of immediately damning every single person that you're involved with. <laughs> Yeah. You know, we, we mentioning mentioning Callahan because Roland's about to give Callahan his whole story. You, you know, I think we've kind of forgotten with everything that's happened to Callahan over the last couple books in Salem's Lot and everything that mm-hmm. the the dude is definitely Catholic. Like, I, I live in the heart of Catholic country. I, I went to a religious school, and I I just kind of forgot. I'm like, oh, he's just a he's just a cool alcoholic that works in a homeless shelter. He's just a chilled out dude. No, he's he's hard Catholic. He was literally a priest. Yeah. Um, you know, and he lost his faith. Like that was part of what happened, you know, like it was his arc in Salem's lot. So when Roland goes and says, All right, so in order to work up to the demon baby, I need to tell you basically from square one up to now, he fills him in and says, All right, so we gotta get that sucker out of there. Um, and Callahan says, absolutely not. And he even goes so far as to say, like, if you suggest it, I will kill you. If you suggest, if you suggest terminating the pregnancy to, you know, to Susanna, or if you try and go forward with it, you're like immediately, like just it's broken. Yeah. He was all, he was all chilled out about the premarital sex that Roland was having with Rosalita. And then all (laughs) of a sudden he went hard Catholic. Yeah. Um, and this kind of fucking sucks because um it feels a little bit out of character for callahan um and it's not just that i it's not just that i you know this personally goes against my convictions about a woman's autonomy autonomy over her body and such it's not just my personal thing like this gets in like it it is it, it almost feels like a plot contrivance like oh we wanted to tell this story about about what happened to Callahan. And also we need to have somebody who is very much on the side of she needs to carry it to term. Yeah. yeah. It's um again, cause you don't see it coming. Cause they're talking about ways to kill all of these wolves. I mean, they're, I mean, they've been pretty proactively talking about murder. Yeah. Well, and, and then in this circumstance, he's like, excuse me, this is a murder that you're talking about. Yeah. Well, and then Roland says, like, you know, we're we're like 95 percent sure that it is unholy, that this thing will, you know, probably not just kill uh, Susanna, but also like maybe might kill Rosalita, you know, if, if she goes into labor here. Um, yeah, you know, might, uh, I'd eat the entire town. Yeah. Like we have no idea. And immediately Callahan kind of like clams up and says, oh, well, that's for God to decide, et cetera. And Roland makes a few very good observations about this. Um, But one of them is like, haven't you killed like thousands of monsters? Like, (laughs) I don't know. Um, Yeah. Yeah. There's a really interesting thing, too, that Roland notes, where as soon as they start talking about this pregnancy, 
Callahan stops using Susanna's name. She's just the woman. Right. So she's no longer, she's no longer in his eyes, uh, a fully realized character in this fine novel. She's um, an area where a murder might take place. (laughs) And I have to hold fast against that murder. She, she, she is a commodity to be, to be protected. Um, yeah, yeah, this is, it just feels very strange and very out of place here. You're right. It's easy to forget that Callahan is slash was a priest, no matter how much he was, you know, the cool drifter, you know, like he's still fulfilling that role. Like he even says like, oh yeah, Rosalita, she knows a lot of stuff, but she'd never do it because she's a Catholic. It's like, fuck, this followed us here. <laughs> it's it's like how the only thing I remember from algebra is foil first outer inner last. That's the only thing I remember. I've put everything else by the wayside. <laughs> yeah, but Callahan's out here. He's playing fast and loose. Like we can. Oh, it's man, Jesus. That's fine. Uh, but no, here is here is that one particular thing. Um, and Roland chafes under it, and he even just kind of says like, "Yeah, you know, if this comes to disaster, it's on you." Um, and like so, it's a little bit more. Uh, it's not it's not two-sided because one person is definitely wrong here um but uh it's a little bit more uh kind of more back and forth around this because callahan tries to turn it against roland and say okay well what's your first concern in this it's not for Susanna's well-being it's for the fabric of the tet and it's for the integrity of his mission right he says all of this Mm -hmm. is to a find the tower and b protect the rose things that Things that get in the way of that, such as one of our Kotet dying, that is a huge problem of, you know, not just universal importance, but multiversal importance. Well, we've started, we started having problems in the Kotet when we started keeping these secrets, like everything with Susanna, with the pregnancy and everything. And um, we set up another one here when he's like, you know, if Eddie finds out that you said that there was a chance to terminate this and you are the one that stood against it. I mean, I don't, I don't know what he would do. I mean, I'd imagine he'd want to kill you. Yeah, <laughs> Roland says. So, you know, if, you know I, I will, a whole I will, new set of secrets. I will do what I can to protect you. However, Eddie will kill you if he finds out. Um. So yeah, yeah just a, just a ton of just like weirdly political drama within this group. And Roland has some observations about uh, your man Jesus seeming seeming to be a bit of a son of a bitch when it comes to women. Um. Which <laughs> uh, I mean. As as correct as that as that might be in a certain sense, that also feels like Stephen King coming out and just saying like just using Roland as his mouthpiece for that. Yep. <laughs> yeah. It is it, again. You can you can feel the author in that as as much as you're like, yeah, this is a good exchange. Uh, and you know, Callahan says, well, his girlfriend was a whore. <laughs> and Roland says, that's a start. And I was like, wait a minute, Roland. <laughs> uh, it's so hard to know who to be like. No, it's not hard to know. Callahan's wrong. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. You mentioned the secret keeping. Um, It's a little bit dispensed with. So at the end of the previous section, um, Susanna finally decided to open up about what she believes is happening with her, saying, like, yeah, I might be a little bit in the family way. Um, and I'm surprised she wasn't more more angry that everyone like didn't act surprised. Like, so really, like nobody thinks this is shocking. <laughs> I'm, well, I'm not blowing anybody's mind here. So here's the thing: we could have helped you, but yeah, I mean, just like all of that discussion happens happens off screen, and Roland's you know does the usual thing, which is I can't believe we put this off. I can't believe we put things at risk for 
you know, to avoid the direct solution, which is discussing the problem. So at the very least, that did not cause a further blow up with the more established portions of the quartet. And I mean, Andy gave Callahan a little job, like, okay, you want this so badly? Like, you keep an eye on her. If she leaves this house, that's on you. Like, you, you got to be responsible. Yeah. Like, you, she, she cannot be alone, most of all, when she's Mia. So watch for these particular telltale signs. Watch for her, you know, touching her hand to her temple, things like that, saying, like, all right, you need to take responsibility for this choice that you have forced us into. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, to Callahan's credit, he's like, okay, I can, I can do that. I can own that particular part of it. And then this really doesn't become an issue again. So, um, yeah, uh, the takeaway here, like we said, uh, is conscriptor for this. Additionally, Roland is putting together a crew. You know, he needs six people from the Cala to help defend the place, three of each sex and most certainly not Andy. Uh, and what's hilarious is that pretty much everybody um, comes to the conclusion that both Andy and Ben Sleitman, the older, are not trustworthy, uh, roughly at the same time. And they also have their own different reasons. You, you know, if you count the six people from the Kala and our Kata, all is to Shane's 11. He's just putting together a crew for one last caper. <laughs> we, we, we've got a, uh, it's, but, it, but it's a reverse caper. He's trying to stop the kids from being stolen. <laughs> oh, exactly. Dan. He's trying to keep the jewels in the casino. Ocean 14. Danny Ocean and the gang are brought in as consultants to like beef up security casino, but it's a double grift <laughs> because they're building a fake casino that other people will rob. And it actually puts money into the, see it broke down. That's why it was never made. Uh, Julia Roberts wouldn't sign on. It was a whole thing. <laughs> exactly. Her, her people just were not on board with it. No, her. no. They didn't like the whole Julia Roberts plays a character who pretends to be Julia Roberts thing. It was a big bummer. <laughs> yeah, she thought she, she, Yeah, she thought it just... Uh, did. <laughs> on this Dark Tower podcast, we discuss, we discuss things that got too meta. <laughs> 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 Oh, man. Uh, so we have a little, bit of, a little bit of a time skip here because there are, you know, a series of five or eight days where the Cotet is doing more schmoozing. Um, everything up to this has been kind of preamble. They're actually putting their plan into motion. Um, and there's an amazing sequ sequence where Susanna demonstrates not just that she has learned how to throw the, the, the plates from the, uh, from the Sisters of Ariza, uh, but she has completely outclassed them. She is dual wielding these platters. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She fires off. What does she fire off? Eight and three seconds? Yes. She fires them off eight and three seconds, um, throwing two of them at a time. Uh, they hit a figure traced against the wall um, in a straight line about two or three inches apart. They say <laughs> one person observes, oh, if that was a person, he'd be in, you know, he'd be cutlets right now. And then Grandpa <laughs> shouts out, he ends the little section by saying, you're bugger. <laughs> <laughs> you know, while they're going around and schmoozing the town and while Susanna's learning this too, did I really enjoyed the, um, well, the, the the what's basically the the George Carlin usage of the word "fuck" history about Kamala. They're <laughs> like, you know, Kamala has over two hundred and seventy eight definitions. It can mean this. Yep, in the but English it, language, it's all it's a whole bit. 
Yep. It's it's multiple and different characters even uh, uh different characters even observe that like yeah, it Kamala is basically smurf. Like that you just it is used for every noun, every verb, every adjective. With you know, that <laughs> that smurf really smurfed the smurfy smurf. Like yeah, except replace smurf with Kamala. Yeah. Oh, it is it is it is very good. There are a couple of times where King kind of reflexively um talks about the changing use of language in the back third. There's a section I believe in Song of Susanna where he says like, "Oh, I never I never thought that I would write I would write a fantasy story where I invented a language like Elvish, but here we go. I guess we've got these people walking around saying ka and kamai and <laughs> stuff like that. You you can even see it, and we'll talk about this later. But when later when we he's there with um, Calvin when Eddie is, I mean, the words that are coming out of his mouth don't make any sense. No, no, and <laughs> like, and Calvin, he is mostly just kind of uh, tracking along, and anything that seems antiquated, he is saying like, "Aha, it is like from this book." Um, but otherwise, <laughs> he's mostly um, following, just following context clues. I think like we all are. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, seems like they've got a shot, especially with Susanna on their side. There's a little bit of, um, kind of sleight of hand being done with essential facts about what the wolves are. Like, um, Roland debriefs Eddie on his conversation with, uh, Grandpair about when he saw one of the wolves after one was taken down. Um, and <laughs> they say like, wait a minute. It's what? It's like, yeah, I know. It's so obvious, right? They never actually come out and say it. And it even extends to when Roland and Susanna are coaching the other throwers. Like, hey, you need to aim for the very tippy top of the head. You know, yeah. it is kind of, you know, they, they, they kind of dodge around explaining that like, oh, these are robots and they're aiming for the satellites on top of their heads under the hoods. And we do see once again that Roland could have been a really good court because he has Susanna hold back a little bit so that one of the town's ladies can beat her and <laughs> like one round of competition. And that's a, that's some good coaching. Yeah, he's managing. Uh, he's managing morale. Mm-hmm. Yeah, morale and confidence. He understands. He understands how important those are. <laughs> yeah. Um. I forget what we were going to talk about. There is a funny moment where Jake is kind of musing on what will happen if there's a slaughter, you know, if um, one of the parents, uh, if a set of the parents who are both um, who are both fighting, if they die, if baby Aaron was left orphaned to Andy, which is like nobody in the Cala can step up and help him. Andy would have to raise this kid. Jake observes he would probably die within six months, die or turn into the weirdest kid in the universe. <laughs> There, 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 there. Would you like a horoscope? I would like food. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, and like all the other kids in town will be like, God, he's one of those Andy school kids. You know, they're always weirdos. <laughs> oh, man. He drinks skim milk. It's so weird. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Jake, while he's, you know, reflecting on that particular horror, he is also kind of just uh, churning over in his head what he can do just about this quandary that he has with his best new, with his new best friend, Benny and his dad, the elder Slightman. Um, and there's some setup being done here, uh, kind of pointing to the fact that Slightman has, doesn't just have spectacles, but has spectacles that are conspicuously out of place here. 
um you know there are a couple of theories like oh maybe like some manny went to another world and got him some glasses etc but this has got him a really nice pair of of ray-bans you know? <laughs> yeah, he's got some gunners nice, just nice to reduce his eye strain. He's, yeah. he's got those Tom Ford glasses. Those Tom Ford glasses. You know, very <laughs> yeah. chic. None of that Warby Parker shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, it's a little bit like, um, oh gosh, in The Wind Through the Keyhole, when what's his name uh, has the watch, remember? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's just like little symmetries. Little symmetries are nice. So the status of the vote is that Eisenhart is on Roland's side. Uh, however, none of this has been able to win over Overholzer, uh, nor Took. They figured that Took uh, was a real son of a bitch, and he would never have come over to the side of seeing reason just because he's a miser. However, over Overholzer, uh, that is a disappointment. These towns, these townspeople, you know, we're, we're getting to know them, but we're also finding out which ones are jerks. Yes. <laughs> like, that's not, it's not all <sighs> idyllic. You used to be cool over Holzer. <laughs> <laughs> um, and this chapter, uh, this chapter called Secrets, um, ends with kind of two requests that are made that set up the kind of branching drama that we have over the next two chapters for the rest of this section. First off, Jake, you know, wants to take the Ruger with him when he goes to stay at the Rocking Bee you know, with, with, with Benny and he won't explain why Roland asks, like, Hey, why do you need a gun to, for this sleepover? You're not going to like try and show off or something. Are you Jake straight up puts it to, puts it to him and he basically pulls out Robert's rules of order and says, um, are you asking me as Din or are you asking me as Roland? Um, Roland doesn't force the issue. He, he ends up trusting him, but Jake sees a need to protect himself. Just shows how far, th- how far, Far things have gone up in this world that's moved on. I mean, anybody else, if a 10-year-old boy was like, can I bring a gun to a sleepover? You'd be like, what? No. You better be talking about a Nerf gun, boy. (laughs) Yeah, seriously. Yeah. Yeah, go on, just put it in your knapsack. No reason you can't bring a handgun with you. Yeah, just make (laughs) sure. Just make sure. A 10-year-old boy sleepover. Yeah, just put it it toward the bottom. That way, you know, like, we don't want want this to be a safety issue. Yeah. (sighs) Yeah. Um, the the other request, which feels very outlandish, is that Eddie wants to go to New York. He's not homesick, but he has come to the conclusion, based on one of Callahan's stories from the previous day, that they have been incredibly dumb. Uh, and that is what takes us to the Dogen Part 1. What made him realize this was understanding how eager Callahan was to get rid of Black 13 understanding that he was just waiting for somebody to come and take the burden off of his hands. He figures that Calvin is going to be in a similar situation with the uh, vacant lot where the rose is. Oh, and what a, what a journey it's going to be to New York. <laughs> I like this. This is, this is very good because um, Eddie, I mean, he's, he's kind of out of, out of place in both worlds. You feel a little bit bad for him. But he's a little bit too a little bit too Earth for Midworld and a little bit too Midworld for Earth at this point. <laughs> a little bit country, a little bit rock and roll. Yes. <laughs> so this chapter opens up with a very frightening section where Roland and Eddie are trying to transfer Black 13 um into the bowling bag that they found in the Todash version of the um of the vacant lot. They figure it has 
kind of protective effects because the bag itself is toe dash. Um, it's kind of like shimmery or something like that. Aside from saying nothing but strikes at midworld lanes, which somebody on Etsy, please make that, please. <laughs> yeah, but but as they're doing it, you know, Eddie just basically says, "This is the most scared that I have been uh, since Barony Coach on you know on Blade and the Mono," because again, this is the artifact of ultimate evil that if it wakes up or if you jostle it, uh, it can just open up a hole in reality around you and send you off into Todash space. What I really really like about the cave is that these voices are basically competing to make Eddie feel terrible, like. His mom's going on about it, and then his brother pipes in, like, well, what are you going on about? Like, he literally killed me. Like, <laughs> I, th- I think that I have the most license to be upset right now, mom. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm the one who's going to make him feel bad. You sit back in the cave and be cool. Yeah. Um, and Roland kind of brings brings up something that is kind of kind of neat about this. You know, these are not voices that are howling from the void. Like, there's nothing in particular about this cave that contains you know henry and and and, and eddie's mom uh, instead it is kind of picking up on <laughs> your memories inside of you and then repeating them back to you louder so it is mm-hmm. kind of taking and amplifying something that kind of already happens you know uh, part of eddie's struggle wasn't that he was literally hearing voices like in a hallucination kind of way but his internal monologue especially when he attacked himself uh, you know, was in the voices of other people. Um, this cave plus Black 13, uh, you know, when it is not just making the chimes and whatnot, um, it is kind of causing people's minds to eat themselves alive. And and I've got nothing but respect for Eddie because he actually does really well with it. Like for me, it'd be that time just over and over again that I tripped running across the street in first grade and peed my pants like it, i've just got a, like a litany of stuff that i would just be reminding myself of you know yep. like... oh man um but yeah eddie isn't just hearing voices uh from his family he is hearing um you know even just kind of incidental people from around his neighborhood such as kasaba drobnik or the mad fucking hungarian extremely cool yeah i i am i am way into the nickname the mad fucking hungarian (laughs) (laughs) yeah um but the plan is to have eddie just kind of think his most 1977 thoughts um and you know use that to aim the doorway as roland stays behind and opens the box so that the door will open as well um and then kind of maintain the uh the portal while eddie is going in to do his uh to do his business i I love when eddie gets in 1977 and we have that like charles dickens a christmas carol scene like well why what day is it today why sir it's christmas day (laughs) it's it's the 23rd of june 1977 (laughs) so can i ask you directions for city hall or will you just tell me to go fuck myself i think is what he says yeah. yeah, that's a good part too. Yeah, um, I just I also like you know they're they're about to go through, and Eddie even you know Eddie at one point even said, "All right, well Jake's a kid, Susanna, we have no idea what's going to happen with her. Roland, you're really out of place. You're not really that suave in terms of our world. Like I'm I'm the only person who can go do this, who can who, who can undertake the risk. But then he realizes, ah oh, shit, uh, what's my hair look like? What are, what do my clothes look like? Will I be out of place? And all it takes is a one little piece of rawhide to tie his hair back. 
to fit in as kind of somebody who's like a back to nature hippie kind of guy. Wow. <laughs> not, not, not a good look. <laughs> no, that's all. That's also not how I picture Eddie, but you know, <laughs> yeah. So. yeah. Like, like an, like an art teacher from um, some like period piece comedy show, you know? <laughs> yep. <laughs> Just uh, yeah. uh <laughs> like the guidance counselor from freaks and geeks or something. Yeah. He's a, he's a cut character from uh wet hot American summer. But yeah, Eddie has figured out that, okay, you know, time is moving faster, but we're not exactly fucked just yet. Uh, one aspect that may have them fucked is that when he approaches the Manhattan restaurant of the mind, um, Jack Andalini's car is outside. There's such a difference compared to book two with the way that we see Eddie right now encountering a lot of the same characters. Like, Eddie is cool, measured, knows exactly what he's doing. He, I mean, he's got a, like, a plan. Like, he doesn't hesitate at any moment during this when he runs into to Jack Gandolini and um, his his guy pal, George Biondi? George Blondi? Biondi, yeah. Biondi. Yeah. <laughs> big, big, big nose Biondi. Um, <laughs> it, it's so satisfying, isn't it? Oh, yeah. yeah. This is a great scene. <laughs> So this this is so good. You know, remember the state that Eddie was in in book two, he was, you know, coming down off withdrawals. He was sweaty. At one point he was naked um, and, you know, fighting people uh, with guns and such. Badass in its own way, uh, but lacks a certain amount of dignity. Eddie, he has doubts. He is processing the situation on the fly um, and he's caught off guard a couple of times. But at no point does he lose his cool. It's great because, you know, he rolls up. He breaks into the store because it's been closed, um, and he sees um, Andalini and Biondi. Men <laughs> They're not physically threatening Calvin. Instead, what they are doing, um, one of them has uh, what appears to be a mason jar of gasoline, and they are threatening to burn Calvin's um, rare first editions. Which is literally the, I mean, probably worst thing that guy can imagine. Yeah, yeah. It's just, it's very funny that, Okay, so there's a lot of stuff about Calvin Tower that I'm going to reject because I see quite a bit of myself in him. Um, so I think maybe uh, it's it's a little bit too 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 close for comfort. But yeah, you're right. Like they they understand what's going to make him panic more so than just hurting him. But also, like Calvin probably knows that they can't actually hurt or kill him because he has something that they need. Yeah, he'd probably be willing to lose a hand, a foot, and at least one testicle. Yes. Before he'd lose any of the books. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, even uh, like, like like Eddie even uses the uh, the testicles, though, um, in his appeal at the end, saying like, hey, how attached are you to your testicles? Because if you don't leave, they're going to come back for you um, and probably take them. Uh, yeah. But <laughs> they're, they're torturing him. It's just very hilarious. He's got this, you know, this glass-faced cabinet with a bunch of stuff. It's not all of the most uh, expensive stuff. Uh, they, they mention that he has a signed copy of Ulysses um, that is worth $26,000. And we're talking about 1977. Like, I think some character in there talked at some point during this about making $18,000 a year. Some... Or maybe that was back in some Callahan stuff. So I mean, we're we're twenty six thousand is a uh, I'm sure in today's money would be what like somewhere hundred grand. Um, yeah, I would say. 
that, 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 that seems like a safe bet for a comparison. They pull out one that is listed as being worth 7,500 and one of them remarks that, Oh, what would make a book worth more than a new car? I tell you, they're lucky that this is all happening in 1977 and not in the modern era where Calvin Tower also has access to eBay because <laughs> he would not he would not own this vacant lot anymore. He would be bad and dead. Yes, no, he would. Um, yeah, it would be terrible. I have no idea how he even got a hold of this stuff. Um, I know because he gave, I know how he did because he had access to a lot of resources and he squandered all of them in, in pursuit of his obsessions and insecurities. But yeah, um, I answer my own question there. I, I just picture, you know, that image that floats around online from time to time of that couple dividing up their beanie babies, like in divorce oh. court. <laughs> that's, a, that's a very Calvin Tower place to be. Yeah. Well, it's also like, um, oh, my gosh, that new story about the people who in their divorce contract talked about like they split up their Funko Pops or something. Yes. I, I, I feel like it's some. Yes. I feel like at some point we we uh, we joked about that before. Um, <laughs> okay, so looking at this here, uh, up to September 2018. Oh wait, no data available. Sorry, this is so riveting when I do things online. Uh, the most recent data is for July. Uh, that is one hundred and seven thousand nine hundred dollars thereabouts. Okay. So yeah, so okay. you were you were uh, in the right order of magnitude. You were very close. Yeah. So. I'll take any of these sidebars if I get a feeling of validation out of them. Why don't you look up some more stuff that says that I was kind of kind of close to being right on something? Yeah, let's let, let, let's let's play time machine. The Price is Right. Yeah, I got I got nothing but time for stuff like this. <laughs> so um, Eddie says I've had enough of this, um, and he decides to get some revenge on the people who some prevenge on people who made his life hell in the future. <laughs> Mm. I like that term, prevent. Yes, he could say to get prevent on them. I love his opening gambit too, because he understands. You know, it doesn't matter if the person you know doesn't doesn't know you. If somebody says your name in a cheerful way, no matter what you're doing, if you're if you're menacing a fat guy with a jar of gasoline, somebody says Cole. I look over like, hey, how's it going? Uh, not knowing <laughs> that I will be pistol whipped with the world's largest pistol. Yeah. <laughs> Which is what Eddie does to Beyondy. Beyondy, big nose Beyondy, who's got a huge beak. It's kind of what he's famous for. Eddie takes this pistol, which has a, uh, they, they say it's got a barrel like the Queen's Tunnel, then just smacks him, smacks him one, and very quickly subdues uh, Andalini afterwards. <laughs> Under Like, he doesn't want to kill either of them because that would make more trouble than it's worth, but also... I, I think Eddie's a little bit afraid that he's going to mess things up. And at some point, Andalini will not make his appointment to be devoured by lobstrosities. It, it's so satisfying, too, because there's not a moment in this where Andalini has just even a speck of the upper hand. Like, he's been caught, to use the vernacular, with his pants down. <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, he's, he's just as naked as Eddie is, um, mm -hmm. functionally. And Eddie just, like... Ooh, he's so sharp and clever. I mean, yeah. he he's good. Yeah, well, he's also, I mean, he's talking a huge game. Like, he's even saying, like, you know, get, get, guess what? Go tell whoever sent you. You know, just go, 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 go tell Balazar. Go tell, and he's, like, even naming Andalini's, like, brother. Like, all, all of his <laughs> family like, and stuff. I'm going to kill your mom. I'm going to kill your dad. I'm going to run up in your grandma's house. I'm going to kill her. <laughs> you don't know me yet, but I know everything about you. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 great. 
Um, <laughs> I, li- I like it quite a bit. Um, and he even says, like, hey, take news back to Bal- Balazar that uh, Calvin here, he's not going to sell you the lot. He's going to sell it to uh, uh, the, T- the Tet Corporation. Nice save. Yeah. Um, he scares him off. You know, uh, Biondi comes to and they decide, all right, well, it's not worth dealing with this with just us two. Eddie knows that they're going to go to Balazar, get some dudes and come back and make Calvin's life hell. So they have uh, not a lot of time to spare, uh, which Calvin then uh, tries to impose his own existential inertia onto that uh, onto that time limit. And Eddie eventually concludes, um, I don't like you very much. Oh, yeah. I mean, Eddie ends up, I mean, this is the person that should, like, I mean, Eddie just saved his life effectively. He just saved his books. I I mean, Eddie is obviously, like, this mystical figure. And as soon as, like, the mortal peril is, like, maybe 10 minutes away, he's like, well, I don't don't actually know who you are. And, you know, I've had this lot for a long time. Like, he's a shit. (laughs) Yeah. He's saying, like, oh, my analyst is saying, like, oh, I'm, I I just, this is a trait that I have and it has to be okay. And, well, my first wife, she left me. She said, I thought I married a man, not a pack rat, blah, blah, blah. Like, Calvin just has a lot of kind of, like, self-reinforcing selfishness to him. Um, Yeah. And no matter what, like, I mean, Eddie pulls out a gambit here that we're going to talk about. Like, he straight up, <laughs> he's, he straight up affirms an ancestral truth of Calvin Tower's whole family, of his purpose. And Calvin's like, well, I can't leave right now because I have somebody coming, somebody coming by to look at a rare copy of so-and-so. There, I did like this one moment in there when Eddie's talking about how... They're going to, Balthazar is going to come back. He's going to burn down your whole story. He's going to burn down this and that. Um, he does mention Burnsomatics, which I know is a brand name, but it's a brand name we know for a, a blowtorch from Misery. Oh, yeah. I forgot mm-hmm. about that. That is very Yes, good. yes, yes. <laughs> well, Eddie specifically says, yeah, they're going to come back with a Burnsomatic and they're going to use it on you. It's not that they're going to burn the place down, but it's like, like literally doing like a Marcellus Wallace. I mean, I'm going to get some tongs and a blowtorch, you know, <laughs> just some real upsetting Tarantino kind of stuff. Absolutely. Ma- oh. <laughs> Calvin. <laughs> get it together, Calvin. It's like Calvin's like one of those people that, cause you know, I, I'm a firm believer in self care, but that talks so much about self care that it's more being selfish. You, yes. you know, like yeah. he's like, that kind of person, you know? Yeah, yeah. He's 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 locked himself into a in, into a pattern where yeah, uh, yeah. As long as he does whatever what he feels like, uh, it's not uh, it's it's not a problem. It'll be okay. Yeah, I haven't filed my income taxes for the last four years because you know it's about self care. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm not in a place where I can file income taxes emotionally. <laughs> Uh, kind of doesn't factor into the end of the worlds, plural, Cal. <laughs> um, my my other favorite detail about this is that uh, you know, Cal, you know, uh, there's coffee. Um, and Eddie gets you know, he gets Calvin a cup. Well, first off, Calvin is you know way too shaky to drink a full cup, so he pours it out, so he only has a half cup. Meanwhile, Eddie he eventually just starts drinking the half and half because it is one of the rare luxuries that is just not available to him. Um, which is very neat, I think. Like, oh, I can get coffee anywhere. It's that sweet cream I can't get. You know, now that I think about it, we haven't seen a lot of cows in um, Midworld. 
Yeah, not a lot of threaded stock. I think they, uh, I think they mostly instead of giving milk, I think they give that gooey that's inside glow sticks. <laughs> yeah, you know, and and Eddie's probably had to deal with enough scarcity that it starts to be like, well, I don't know, like that book, the Poison Wood Bible, where protein is just so important to Eddie that he's not going <laughs> to miss a chance to get any free fat and or protein. Oh yeah, no, I just feel like even even shitty creamer, like he's just going to, uh, they, like they talk about, he says like, oh, he's sipping it like it's a thimble full of brandy. You know, and speaking as somebody who has recently started adding half and half to his coffee for uh, for, for for tummy reasons, um, I I get it. I thought you were actually going to say has started adding a thimble full of brandy to his coffee, and I was like, wow, yeah. well, you nice. Quell qual, you know? quells the shakes. Good morning. Yeah. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> so. <laughs> But yeah, Calvin is neurotically attached to the lot. He's attached to his books uh, because he's a pack rat. He just has a lot of kind of irrational attachment. Um, however, in looking at this cabinet full of books, Eddie's attention is drawn to one particular book called The Dogen. Um, and Calvin, he sees fit to give a whole history lesson about, oh, yeah, this is especially rare because it's not supposed to be called the Dogen. It's supposed to be called the Hogan after this kind of uh, semicircular Quonset hut style building that um, Native Americans uh, used to live in in the West, etc. Um, Eddie's <laughs> Eddie doesn't care about that whatsoever. He cares because it is written by one Benjamin Sleitman Jr., which also adds that's up to a, 19. <laughs> yeah, that's a name that we know he, from as recently as like five pages ago. I know, right? Uh, same thing yeah. as, you know, remember Overholzer, right? Calvin also uh, called out Jake's name as being something from an over, Overholzer book. Um, so we have we, we have all of this. Also, um, Benjamin Sleipen, he lived in Sturgis, I believe. Like he retired to Sturgis after he made it big writing these books, etc. It's just way too much to be a coincidence. And this is something that uh, kind of attunes Eddie to the fact that Sleipman might not be on the up and up. Like this is seen as like a deus ex machina clue um, that Sleipman Ka, has a bigger role. When, when Ka wants to give you a clue, Ka really slaps you in the face with it, huh? Ka, like, Ka doesn't have time for subtlety. <laughs> yeah, the sun's catching on glasses. And you're like, well, that's weird. Nobody <laughs> else here has glasses. And then, huh, the Hogan. Huh, weird. <laughs> I should make a note of that. Yeah, so familiar. <laughs> Dear God, I am not a smart gunslinger. <laughs> Please help me put the pieces together. Give me a sign. No, another yeah. one. Another one. No, keep them coming. <laughs> All right. Yeah, one more. Yeah. <laughs> and speaking of, the the person that needs 40 signs is Calvin. Yeah, so Calvin says, like, you know, f fuck this cabinet. But no, really, don't fuck this cabinet. We're going to have to deal with that in a second. Uh, the most valuable thing you know, on this property is this piece of paper from this from from, from this safe. Um, so he goes back and produces it. Eddie sees that the unfound symbol is on it. Uh, this thing is written by you know Stefan Torin. Um, you know, like way back, dating to eighteen. 46 or something like that yeah that adds up, adds up to 19 all the dates add up to 19 and calvin plays a fucking guessing game with eddie saying i will not trust you unless you can tell me what is written on this paper you know if you are actually here to you know to talk about you know this last piece of turtle bay that my family owns 
then tell me what's on here. And Eddie says, like, oh, yeah, definitely. It's DeShane, right? Probably either Roland or Steven. He's like, fuck. It has, has Roland DeShane written on it. Line of Eld. Um, <laughs> and that still isn't enough. Autumn, it's not enough. Yeah. I... Uh... You know, it, it, this this actually probably would be me in, like, the fantasy novel. Like, I'd pop in a Narnia or something, and I'd be like, eh, it's kind of hot here. I don't, I don't like it. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, or, like, like a fate smacking you in the face. You're about to go on a quest, and I'm like, ah, I don't have good shoes. Yeah. I, I don't know. I'd rather mm. go back home. And, Mr. Tumnus, your knees don't bend the right way. You've got a whole goat leg <laughs> thing going on. Ah, I just, I've got yeah. I don't want to miss my stories. Just come back later. Yeah. <laughs> You're freaking me out. Yeah oh yeah so it takes more cajoling eddie's plan for tower is to uh you know to leave uh to you know to to, to go upstate uh to go to new england because eddie specifically cannot picture um balazar's men uh, i think they say like wearing a checkered cap and drinking something drinking moxie or whatever um so like <laughs> okay you know go, go go on a vacation you know get deep no uh, Deep Noah is getting cancer treatments. We know that Deep Noah lives because Deep Noah is there to help save uh, Callahan later on. Uh, but go up there, drop a contract because I'm going to buy this primo piece of Manhattan real estate for one American dollar. That's a down payment, though. <laughs> um, also, write down the uh, uh, the zip code of your destination at the at the vacant lot. Uh, it is imperative that you leave because, you know, really the only thing determining when, not if, when Balazar's men get here is traffic. <laughs> <laughs> like, if it's a, if it's a rough also, day. Go ahead. They also kind of throw in as an aside, too. Like, oh, by the way, you're going to need a lawyer. And he's like, well, actually, Aaron's a lawyer. Yeah. What a freebie. Yeah. <laughs> Aaron's a lawyer and his brother's a lawyer. Don't talk about his cousin, I think, because he definitely died in a plane crash um, back in 1994. Um, yeah, it was really fucked up. That's uh, <laughs> such a weird it's such a weird connection uh, between this and insomnia. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Uh, however, there's one final condition. Eddie gets him to agree. Hey, you know, pick up, leave, ignore that appointment for somebody looking at the rare so-and-so. Um, there's one more thing because Calvin knows and Eddie knows when they come back, they're going to burn this place down. Calvin has actually seen the door behind Eddie. He sees it as kind of a shimmering area. He actually saw Eddie turning around and looking at Roland, you know, with the bullets in his ears, trying to ignore the sound and, you know, just in a tremendous physical pain as he tries to keep the box open. Um, Calvin says, well, if there's any place where, you know, if that is a place where my books will be safe, uh, okay, put, put, put on your lifting belt. Um, let's get a, a furniture dolly and let's take these rare books in this cabinet uh, uh, between dimensions for safekeeping in the cave. And they make sure to show us that Roland is in a very real physical pain. Like he's barely getting this done. And like he thinks to himself, yeah, I bet a lot of this, this, this pain with this dry twist it ain't going away if I hold this uh, open much longer. But, you know, Calvin's got to have his books. Yeah, yeah. Like, Eddie even remarks, like, yeah, your hair is whiter than when we started this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you've been pelted by so many Beanie Babies thrown <laughs> through the portal. Like, you're yeah. all bruised up. It's an avalanche of Funko Pops. <laughs> yeah. That Michonne, that sword is very pointy. Everything about the Michonne <laughs> Funka Pop is very is very round, except for the sword, and that goes right in your eye. <sighs> You're not supposed to get swords in it. <laughs> uh, and so 
Roland thinks that he's kind of playing off the dry twist that he has. He's playing it off legit. Like Eddie says, oh, your your rheumatism kicking up, old man, right? Um, But Eddie knows that it is more profound than that. Also, they discuss, yeah, there's nothing good about Slipin. This is a problem. It's the glasses. It's the uh, it's the book. You know, it's the Dogen. Like we, you know, Jake is in terrible danger. Yeah. Any any final thoughts on your what? part about uh, Calvin's uh, exploits here? I I think I've said everything I need to say about Calvin, and um, I can't say that I'm looking forward to seeing him again in the future. But <laughs> oh, Calvin. Man, Calvin, you're not only your own worst enemy, you're kind of ours. Again, I see a lot of myself in him because I also cling to possessions and have a certain existential inertia around difficult to say. I'm a, I'm a dickerer, you know, uh, a ditherer. I don't dicker. I'd, I've never bargained for anything in my life. I'm a ditherer. You know, and, and I have to imagine after just um, years of the Internet age and all of those emails where princes have 10,000 USD I, I wouldn't believe Eddie either. I'd be like, okay, yeah, sure. I've got this, I've got this like deed or whatever. I'm just, so yeah, I, I can't say I don't have a lot in common with Calvin too. I mean, a, 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 kip, a hippie with a howitzer just traipsed across dimensions and said, give me this thing for a dollar. Like there, you know, yeah, my, my that, skepticism that, would that, be up. That's going to be really good branding for Eddie's Marvel movie. The hippie with the Howard is pretty good. Like Merc with the mouth, right? Yeah. Oh, such good mouthfeel. The guy got kind of a cellar door thing going on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the most beautiful superhero description in the English language. <laughs> uh, so uh this cuts over so the first dogen part one was about the uh was about the book the second dogen is about the actual structure that we're going to find that becomes very very important um specifically to Susanna's story uh but let's cut over to jake's kind of part of this as he intentionally tries to tuck her out his buddy do you do you ever feel like because because benny doesn't come off really Right. Like, he doesn't seem like a smart boy in this section of the book. Like, the questions that he asked Jake, like, what does your room look like in the other world? Like, he just reminds me of Ralph Wiggum. Like, he's like Ralph Wiggum. <laughs> My Billy Bumbler's breath smells like Billy Bumbler food. <laughs> yeah. I choo choo choose you as my friend, Jake. Like, <laughs> oh, man. Um, I think that um, Benny could be played off as slow. I just think he's really soft. I think that he's. he's... Just, he... He's a good, sweet boy, but next to Jake, who's so, like, hardened and wily, like, it's nice that Jake gets to play, but, like, Benny's just like, wow, is that the color red? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> like, yeah. This... It's very it's very sweet, um, and, you know, yeah. to the point where, like, I, you know, like, I made an observation, like, you know, it, it's it, there's a little bit of sadness to the fact that you know they're sleeping in Benny's room, and Ben, you know, Benny asks, like, "Hey, well, you know, what's your what's your room at home like?" And you know, Jake reflects and says, "Oh, he wouldn't believe half of the stuff that I said." Uh, so Jake says, "Oh, I've got a desk. Wait, a desk like for writing? Yeah, on paper." Yeah, <laughs> you've, you've, even Jake's like pump the brakes version of his, you know, the opulent life that he lived is still like mind blowing. But also, I remember being a, you know, like a like a 10 year old, 11 year old boy going over to sleep at a friend's house and like talking about his room like, oh, you got bunk beds. 
I was always very jealous of bunk beds too. I thought that was the coolest. Yeah. So that line, that line from Community. I don't know why they call them bunk beds because this one's the real deal. (laughs) (laughs) So, so yeah, I had a friend with a water bed too. Well, before I realized that was like a '70s sex thing. Like he had he had it because of a dust mite allergy, but it was like, oh yeah, it's a slightly different kind of bed. (laughs) <laughs> so all, all i can think of is just simpsons references now I'm like well do you sleep in a water bed no i sleep in a regular bed in the loving arms of my wife <laughs> my bed's shaped like a race car um yeah, yeah. <laughs> once i started picturing benny as ralph wiggum I, I i i don't know what to do with myself oh it opens it, it opens everything up <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah so i, I Good. What I love is that um, Jake sets Oi as an alarm clock. Um, yeah. I actually similar the other night, but I, I actually got sabotaged by a dog. I, I had to leave at 4 a.m. to drive like three hours for this meeting that I had over in Mississippi. And um, I woke up at like 5.13 a.m. because my bass sound had laid on top of my phone alarms because <sighs> oh, I set more no. than one. And they were all going off underneath her body and I did not hear them. Oh no! Whoa, yeah. Whoa, whoa, whoa. So l- luckily, I, I like budgeted fine. Like I got there with like three minutes to spare because I'm really weird about being early to everything and traffic and stuff. But like, thanks. Yeah. I really could use an oi. You know, yeah, like m o o n. That spells spells wake autumn up on time. <laughs> yeah, I, I love how they constantly there 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 are a few times in this chapter, but throughout the series in particular, they're, they're like. Does Oi understand, or is he just mimicking back? Like, no, the answer has always been that he understands. Yeah, M-O-O-N, that spells quartet. Yes. Oi gets. M-O-O-N, that spells, and then the, and then he just mimics the marimba sound from an iPhone. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so he sets that, um, and he decides, you know, my friend is tuckered out. You know, we're, we're going to go. And he actually crosses. He crosses the river, you know, where he saw... Um, you know, Ben Sr. and Andy Cross before. Um, and things are weird in Thunderclap. I love this kind of slow gradient that they have from, you know, it's kind of like regular rural civilization to like, oh, there's busted up concrete and fluorescent lights. But it's also slightly weird. There's like cactuses that like move and reach toward you. And a bunch of dead lady cats. Yes. Lots of uh, lots of rock cats. They've been harvested. Rosalita has uh, um, she, she she has harvested them all. Um, but yeah, he you know follows their trail. Believe Roland's gonna get a rubbing tonight. <laughs> Please don't say Roland's getting a rubbing. <laughs> oh, he's getting a rubbing. <laughs> both both kinds. <laughs> nice. Um, but yeah. <laughs> Uh, but Jake is using he's, he's he's grabbed one of uh, Ben Sleitman Senior's uh, handkerchiefs and he's using that to give to give Oi the scent, and this leads them to um, this kind of Quonset hut looking thing uh, uh, that is made by North Central Positronics. This is actually called a Dogen. Uh, and another nice little coincidence. Um, another nice coincidence on top of that is that there's a voice activated password. Jake gets just, you know, just gets a lucky guess says 19. I don't think a lot of, uh, a lot of places let, let you have a two digit password, but there you go. Yeah. Yeah. 
I'm, at least he didn't try like password, but the the O is a zero at yeah. first. <laughs> like, you know, pencil six sixty nine. Yeah, um, not the yeah. uh, <laughs> so. Um, he also like he did it under under duress too. Like it was giving him a countdown. Um, uh, this is a very uh tense kind of scene because Jake has no way of knowing if you know Andy and the others are right behind him, right? Um, so he is looking at this kind of huge assemblage of technology that is like a piece of blood. Uh, there's a bank of monitors, uh, kind of bringing more paranoia into this. He sees on the monitors that the entire Kala is wired with security cameras up to and including like inside the church and Callahan's house. He just thanks their lucky stars that most of their palaver was done outside. If I learned anything from the 1990s movie Sliver, it's that William Baldwin is probably watching everybody in town and J.O.ing all the time. Oh, yes. Um, absolutely. Yeah. He like There's definitely another <laughs> Dogen, a couple callas up where he is just he is just jerking it so right. Um, <laughs> yeah. Oh, the lesser Baldwin's always getting into those kind of messes. I wish I didn't say mess. Hey, hey, Sharon Stone is a big name. It's worth it. <laughs> yeah so um fortunately um well i guess un it's unfortunate because it's kind of crazy that this old-timey village is you know wired for sound uh but he sees on the monitors that Slyman and andy are approaching um and we get something that is really akin to like a vaudeville kind of act like jake even recalls back to elmer you know like when he would see people like this he'd say i'll oh, get him an act on vaudeville Whenever there was this mismatched pair that hated each other. Um, uh, but before he can do that, he has to go into this bunk room that is full of these desecrated corpus corpses. Again, a piece of blood as he hides out, smelling the cinnamon, the cinnamon and clove of the, uh, of the long decayed bodies. It's pretty gross. Very gross. And also Jake can hear the entire conversation. So when I allude to this as a vaudeville kind of thing, um, <laughs> so not only is Andy awful, but Andy and Sleipman hate each other. Um, at, <laughs> at one point, Sleipman, you know, kind of give, gives Andy some sass. And you feel a little bit bad for him momentarily because Andy, like, pinches a nerve on his elbow, completely, like, racking Sleipman's body in pain. And he says, oh, that wouldn't have caused any permanent damage unless I squeezed harder. <laughs> and And... Andy's so like hamily fake apologetic about stuff too. Like, oh, you know, cry pardon, cry pardon. Like, I mean, he's <laughs> oh, he's so evil. I love it. Yeah. Well, like one of his ticks, um, as Andy is kind of you know playing, trying to play things off legit. What you look at his tell is his eyes will flash as though he is laughing, even though there is no, there there is no laughter coming out of his like voice box at his chest or whatever. But, you know, Andy, oh. <laughs> Andy is not just this, you know, cipher. He's not just a human looking and sounding operating system on top of, you know, basically an Amazon Echo. He has actually been around and really, really resents the role that he has been put in. You know, like the reason why he gives Slightman the Vulcan death grip is because he says, like, you know, I get this shit all the time from these villagers saying, Andy, do this. Andy, you're so dumb. Andy, go do this. I'm not going to get it from you, stooge. 
Um, and we learn that Sleitman is uh, kind of a fellow traveler in this. He is somebody who is complicit in <laughs> the uh, terrible act that the wolves are going to perpetrate. Uh, but it is kind of out of circumstance. He has been selected and groomed and tempted uh, because he is the only parent of a non-mated twin. Um, because he, mm -hmm. you know, because he had, you know, like Benny, um, you know, was born as a twin, but the other one died. There is a particular kind of leverage. They found somebody who was in the unfortunate position of, you know, almost losing it all you know, potentially losing it all as opposed to just losing half. And he was plied with gifts. They didn't just give him um, glasses. They gave him a music machine and he gave him an iPod um, to listen to music, you know, um, that, that he keeps away. But like Slyben says, no, I, I use that to get to sleep because I feel terrible about what I'm doing. Oh, what a petty justification, Slyben. Come on. Yeah, uh, that's why I'm hedging my my statements and you almost feel bad for him um oh yeah 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 uh, you know it, you're stuck with like a uh, dirtbag andy and dirtbag slightman and you kind of want to feel something for i mean it's just human nature you want to be like oh poor they both suck you're the worst guy <laughs> yeah yeah slightman is definitely uh he's a traitor you know um and he is not going to get a um, no, I'm not going to talk about that. That we're going to talk about that next episode because it is fucking heartbreaking. Um, what uh, what what ends up happening actually? Uh, but you can't say uh, that it uh, you know, you can't say that it could have happened to a nicer guy. Yeah, you make that devil's bargain. Payment yeah. comes due. <laughs> yeah. So what they're doing, um, in between bickering with each other and poking each other's eyes like fucking three stooges. Um, is they are <laughs> connecting over the monitor, talking to somebody named Finley Otego um, at a place called Al Gulciento. We're going to learn a bunch about this in the future, but what's important right now is that they are talking to him in order to report on the movements of the quartet. Um, and we're getting good kind of counter intel information out of the back of this because we learn that um, Slightman and thus the wolves know that there is something hidden in the cave. They saw Eddie and Roland going up there with something. Uh, they believe it might be maps. They believe it might be a couple of different things. There's a bit of a guessing game aspect to this. And also they believe that uh, the plan to hide the kids down in that arroyo, down in the mines, is a misdirection. Um, they think that there is, uh, you know, that there is more to the plan. So, you know, those are important things. Uh, for Jake to know that they know, right? You know, it, it, it's so funny because in this book, the, the forces of good are just completely blind. And I mean, they're kind of just dragged along by Cobb. And the forces of evil, they're just so smug and so <laughs> blind as well in a different way. Like, they're just like, you can just tell they're all patting themselves on the back. Like, <laughs> oh, yeah, we, we know their whole plan. I've got glasses, you're a robot. <laughs> you know, like... Glasses and the robot, the famous crime duo. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, they're they're just both so blind, like one's through ego and one's through I mean, you're just you're just a human, like trying yeah. to walk the path of the beam. Yeah. It's it's it, it's faith in the face of incomplete information. Yeah, they are being dragged along, you know, by 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 a greater force versus people who see incomplete information and say and extrapolate that they know everything and they don't need to know more. 
that's what we always see with our Stephen King villains is they all get smug and they all forget something. They forget a boiler in a hotel or yeah. they, <laughs> they, you know, they things, get a little, that... things get a little, a little flaky around. Yeah, yeah. They forget that they sent their loyal servant out to the desert to find nuclear weapons. Whoops. <laughs> Oopsie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> so uh, it's fortunate that Jake at least has this piece of information. He ends up waiting uh, as they leave so he doesn't uh, get caught in their back trail. Um, and this is, again, very tense, you know, kind of underselling the moment to moment drama of this. Um, I am very interested in the fact that as Jake is looking around, he sees on the equipment logos for companies like GE and IBM. He doesn't recognize Microsoft because Microsoft doesn't exist yet in his world. Um, notably, anything that is stamped with Lemurk doesn't have a made in the USA mark. It doesn't have a made in anywhere mark. You know, we skimmed over something when Jake was first here that I wanted to, or first um, saw Slightman and Andy together in this this scene that I wanted to mention. It says that Jake really wanted to go see the Star Wars movie, <sighs> and Andy might have reminded him a little bit of C-3PO had he seen it, but he died a month before the movie came out. That is absolutely right. Little yeah. man never got to see Star Wars. Yeah, yeah. And this was, I mean, like, so poor, poor guy. Like, this is before Star Wars was a huge, inescapable thing. Like, imagine having that being something that you would be excited about. Yeah, that bummed me it out when I read like that. It seems like maybe that would maybe be a better use of Black 13 than it would be to get that parking lot with the Rose. I mean, just bring Jake to <laughs> 1986. Yeah. Let him see the Star Wars movies. Yeah, different revivals. <laughs> let, or let, Yeah, let the tower take care of itself. Yeah, I the, the tower can wait for an hour and an an hour and 50 minutes. Like it's fine. Yeah. 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 That, I mean, it's a shame that Jake never got to or you know, like he was not present for when they went to Castle Discordia cuz he could have just gone through some of those doors and, you know, just peeped in, you know, caught caught the matinee and then back to save the world, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Poor little guy. I'm not going to say it's the saddest thing because, I mean, even even aside from when Roland met him and everything that happened after afterwards, he still had a pretty shitty childhood. But he at least should have gotten to understand why C-3PO is annoying as opposed to just seeing the crazy version that would have actually led to him to harm. You, you know, I feel a lot better about Roland letting him fall to his death in the first book if I had known that it was a kid that had seen Star Wars first. Oh, yeah. like is it I'd be like, oh, well. Well, shit, shit happens, you know? Is it, is, it, is it murder of the kid never actually lived? <laughs> exactly. Huh. Give me a lot to think about, Autumn. <laughs> yeah. We're getting a little too, we're getting a little heavy here, huh? Yeah, a little, little, little bit philosophical. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but this section ends with Jake returning, uh, you know, back home without incident. Uh, but really, he's just racked. You know, he has kept a little bit of a secret uh, from his cotet, but they trusted him with it and they came to their own conclusion anyway. But how is his new best friend going to feel this soft, soft, nice boy? How is he going to feel when A, his dad is revealed to be a traitor and B, it is his best friend that does that to him? It's going to be just like when Lisa breaks up with Ralph on camera. You can see the exact moment frame by frame. Betty Slapman heartbreaks. 
Um, Autumn, any final thoughts about this section, about the uh, the contents therein? This is, um, you know, we, we spent so much time at the beginning of the book, the first 500 pages or so world building. This is where we hit our grease slide and everything starts popping. We're throwing discs. Mm-hmm. We're getting towers, um, contracts for towers. We're finding out who the turncoats are. Everything kind of is just popping off all at once. Yeah, yeah, we're 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 setting up for a massive um conflict in the next section that draws everything to a close. Um I say close in air quotes. You didn't see me do that uh because this does leave on a bit of a cliffhanger, just like the next book will because all of these were were written at once. The standout moment of this for me, the standout kind of segment is when Eddie goes back to New York and ends up fighting with Tower, right? Um and also that kind of recap of you know, different conflicts that we saw different versions of in uh, in the drawing of the three. Like that is a standout, you know, like top 10 moment of this series for me. Absolutely. Especially the parallels with it. Yeah. This is just so fun. You know, I say I say this every time, but you want to just finish off the book real quick? <laughs> I, I, I haven't. We I haven't have time. Fi- it's early. I haven't finished it for this session. Like I could totally I could totally do it. But <laughs> alas, we must go. Um, Autumn, thank you so much for hopping on um, and for uh, for talking about this very fun section of the book. Where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at at Mrs. Greer. That's M-I-S-S-U-S Greer. You can also find me on the Duckfeed Slack in the Radio Free Midworld channel. Yeah. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Cole Ross, K-O-L-E-R-O-S-S. Uh, and also, uh, you can see my horror video game videos and writing at hexcrank.com, along with, you know, my other work on duckfeed.tv with these different shows. But until next time, when we finish out The Wolves of the Kala, thank you so much for listening. Uh, and I'm gonna, going to ask you, I'm going to make a request. Have some long days and some pleasant nights. Bye.